Hola people, welcome to episode 22 of the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host Chris Desmond and this is a podcast where I chat with cool people who inspire me and hopefully you to get out of our comfort zones through this, their stories and their ideas. Today I'm chatting with Matt Scorringe. I first came across Matt as I was killing time while hanging around in uh, one of the local bookshops down here in Wellington. I saw this coffee table book of New Zealand surfers on the shelf, so I picked it up, uh, flicked it open, and it fell to the page with Matt on it. So I was enthralled as I read his story, and kind of thought, man, this guy would be wicked to have a conversation with on the podcast. So I creepily did a little bit of a Google stalk on him, um, and then reached out. And uh, Matt was kind enough to get back to me after that creepy advance, uh, and the following conversation is a result. Matt chats today about growing up in Whangamata and being on a surfboard almost before he could walk. He tells me about competitive surfing on the international circuit and free surfing all over the world. Matt also kindly shared with me about how he was surfing with his idols. Then three weeks later, he was in hospital with leukemia. He lets us know the lessons that he learned from surfing and from cancer, especially about focusing on what he can control rather than what he can't. We talk about goals and how Matt approaches his and why he thinks that it's so important for everyone to get clear on theirs. Matt really brought so much insight to the table in this chat. I've taken a heap of notes from our conversation today, but there's no point in me telling you all about them before you hear Matt speak. I'm sure you guys will enjoy our conversation today. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me and Matt. So Matt, welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. It's awesome to have you here today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So Matt, can you? Um, so you're a you're a surfer. Can you let me and the listeners know a, a bit about kind of how you got into surfing and uh, sort of what was the what was the drive there? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I was fairly born into it. Um, to be fair, I, I grew up in a town called Fongamata, which is quite a iconic surf town. You know, there's not a lot else to do there if you don't surf. So anyone that's grown up there, I guess, is drawn to the to the beach and drawn to the waves. I had an older brother that surfed and I guess all my peers that I sort of grew up with, you know, a lot of them had older brothers that surfed. So we were kind of the, the, the younger generation, you know, that were coming up in town that had older brothers that surfed. So, yeah, as I said, it was just sort of a, a natural progression. But in saying that, you know, I do believe, uh, I guess on some sort of other level without getting a little bit too um, airy-fairy that, um, you know, personally I was, you know, that little bit more drawn to it than, than others that I, that I did grow up with. And, you know, there's stories that mum says that when I was four, because um, we, we fortunately uh, at the time we grew up 
beachfront in Fongmata. So nice. I used to apparently steal my brother's surfboard and run down the sand track to the beach and she'd, you know, have turned her back for a moment to to put the washing out or something and there she'll see me in the, in the waves paddling paddling into the little waves. So, you know, there's something about it, I think, from the start that, um, that, I, that I just loved about it. So how old were you then, Matt, when you were uh, kind of just charging off down uh, as soon as your mum's back was turned? I think, like, apparently my brother used to basically take me to the beach when I was two. You know, as I said, we just were right there and sort of pushed me into waves with him holding on to me. But um, around five, I started to surf unassisted and, yeah, get out there and try and catch waves, you know, obviously when the waves are small. But um, those are my earliest memories of being out there myself. So, yeah, about five years old. So Matt, you you kind of grew up in Fongamata and just basically were into it straight away. Um, and then as you grow up, you uh, kind of got got recognised and um, got selected for some uh, New Zealand age group teams. Yeah. So again, growing up in Fongamata, there's a rich history. So a lot of the, I guess, older surfers we looked up to, whether they were only two years older or, or seven years older, um, there's. A lot of a lot of them had represented New Zealand before me, so I guess growing up in that town, it was always something I looked up to and wanted to achieve. Um, and yeah, once I was at the appropriate age to be selected, fortunately, um, you know, I qualified through the, through the New Zealand, I guess, um, ranking system to surf at the the World Junior Champs, and um, I did that for. Uh, four years in a row. So there's there's under 16s and under 18s, and you basically have two years there in each division. You can you can qualify. So it was really good to to achieve that those four years in a row. And um, I guess you know, kind of skipping forward and a little bit off track, uh, it, it has come quite full circle now to to have been coaching the New Zealand World Junior Team um, all these years later. And uh, you know, I I still recall how exciting it was for me as a kid and how much it meant to me at the time. Um, so it's kind of it's quite special to be able to identify that in kids now when they get selected or you know you take them on that first trip. Yeah, that's a a pretty sweet way to give back, and also, yeah, really good that you kind of get to see that from the other side as well. That you've you've experienced it once, so you know what all these kids are going through, and then you get to kind of guide them guide them through that. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'll never forget the first year that I was trying to qualify and I, you know, back when I was at that age and trying to make the team, it was all based off your ranking. So you went to, you know, a series of events around the country and effectively just the top four went. That was it. There was no, I guess, um, room for movement in regards to if, you know, sometimes the top kid this day and age doesn't actually do the New Zealand comps because he's so busy competing over in Australia. So they might say, okay, we know, you know, such and such is the best here in New Zealand. He gets an automatic entry. You know, he's achieving really well over in Australia and so on. But as I said, when it was, when it was my era, um, it was just rankings. And if you had a few bad runs and some, some comps, whether you were the better surfer or not, you, you wouldn't make the team. And it came down to the last event of the year and I was actually in fifth and um, the top four went. And um, I won that event, and I, I skipped up to third. So I, I'll never forget how much pressure was on me in that event, and I guess the elation to to win and you know to make the team and and then go to Bali with the World Juniors and for your first time. And it was, you know, 
there's such a big bad world out there and you, you when I just never forget going to Bali and it was just a, an amazing experience so yeah kind of going back to that your question to be able to guide and you know look after kids and take them on those trips now you can see it in their eyes and their emotions and you know their first trip to somewhere like um, like Bali or wherever it may be so it's quite it is it is special to be kind of at, on the other side of it now was that your first overseas trip as well um, I had travelled a bit prior to that, kind of, you know, as you do with kids with the family. Um, and I had had, sorry, I had been on a couple other surf trips to Australia, but it definitely was my first surf trip, you know, far afield and to a third world country. And mm. it was a huge eye opener. I just, I'll never forget that first, um, I guess, taxi drive from the airport to our accommodation. And I just hadn't, hadn't seen anything like it. It was actually quite intimidating and a little bit scary, but you were with you know the the team and the the coaches and the management, so you felt safe. And I mean, by the third day, you were just used to it. it was just it was just the way that um, life was run there. Um, and 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 again, now I I run an annual coaching camp to Bali for New Zealand juniors, which is basically a, a, a I guess a high performance development experience. I like to call it. And often it's the kids' first time to a third world country like that when I take them. And that first taxi ride to our accommodation, you know, I can see see them experiencing all of those same emotions and sort of that eye-opening experience that I went through. So it's cool. It's kind of half the reason I, I run those camps is to try and provide a, an opportunity for kids to experience those those things that only surfing and traveling can, can do. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really important that we kind of do get exposed to these other these other cultures and uh, like for a uh, a kid from a small town in the Coromandel to uh, to go to Bali and um, and see all the stuff it's it's pretty different to um, kind of the the stuff that you'd be used to in New Zealand. Yeah, definitely. It's you know Bali's quite a common destination now, you know, holiday destination. But back then, in all honesty, it was still really. You know, it was a tourist mecca, but not to what it is now. I mean, or I should say a tourist destination, but it's definitely not the mecca it is now. So it wasn't like every school holidays, you know, all your mates were going up to Bali back in the years that I first went. It was really a, a, a rare destination. So, um, yeah, like you said, coming from the Coromandel, small town the Coromandel, and then going somewhere where... I remember getting back and like not many people other than a few old surf dogs around town had actually been to Bali so it was definitely an experience and and it was cool to be able to come back and share the stories and grow and yeah learn from learn from that uh that trip. Matt before we uh jump any further can you let me know a little bit about kind of uh how competitive surfing works um and for the people that that don't know just kind of in terms of how the competitions are structured and sort of how you how you end up winning them yep so surfing competitions are very unique to any other sport i believe um effectively just to go through the basics of it um you have a series of rounds in that round you know there'll be the heats and the heats are generally 20 minutes long and generally it'll be a heat of four surfers with the top two progressing through to the next round in the heat it's there's a judging criteria which has you know various elements that the the judging panel will critique and 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 the scale is out of 10 so a perfect ride being a 10 point ride 
And further to that, your top two rides in that heat count towards your total score. So, you know, a perfect heat would be a 20-point heat. Within that surfing criteria, there's such things as speed, power, flow, um, variation of maneuvers, equipment, progression. I'd like to compare it maybe a little bit to gymnastics judging. Um, you've got these sort of elements that the, the judges will score on. But the difference in surfing, and the one reason I think it's the most unique sport in the world personally, is you have an unfixed environment continuously. So, you know, I don't know of any other sport that really is quite like it. Um, obviously, you know, you go to the generic sports like golf. If the ball's in the hole, the ball's in the hole. In tennis, if it goes out, there's a there's a the siren that will beep. Um, you know, uh, you might compare it to skateboarding, surf, uh, snowboarding, but again, they're on fixed um, they're in fixed environments. So you know, a skateboard ramp or a half pipe in snowboarding. So everyone gets effectively the same opportunity to perform at their best. But surfing, uh, no two waves are alike. And I've travelled halfway around the world to go to a comp and in a 20-minute heat, you just don't have the ocean come come your way and, and you don't get a wave that provides you a similar opportunity to your other competitors to show the surfing you can do and you can you can just kind of walk away with your tail between your legs and you didn't even get a shot. So it's a very unique sport, a very frustrating sport as well because of those sort of elements. But again, I guess the reward's all the greater because if you do manage to be the, the you know, the best on the day, you've you've had a lot, you know, go your way and you've you've worked really hard to achieve that result. So it's um it is it is one of those sports that uh, you know, the best surfer on the day isn't necessarily the best surfer on the day sometimes. It's it's yeah, it's kind of um especially at the top level we've got so many good surfers, you know, it's argued to say who's the best, but you know, they, they're all capable of winning, but I guess it's the guy that gets those two waves on the day and performs under the pressure and doesn't fall. Yeah, yeah kind of a, depending on the spot that you're sitting in sometimes really, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of, um, I guess, wave knowledge and ocean knowledge that, you know, surfers gather through the years. So if you're, we just kind of look at the top tier and you say, okay, Kelly Slater or um, someone like, let's say, you know, Mick Fanning, if they're in a heat together, I mean, they're both so great. They're both incredibly perfectly technical surfers and their wave knowledge is just incredible. So they will be able to sniff out or position themselves into a wave that, you know, maybe someone of a lower level wouldn't be able to see or find. But again, at at the end of the day, you know, if the best wave comes Kelly's way and he performs or if the best wave wave goes Mick's way and he performs, then it's kind of which one of those two gets that better wave and isn't isn't off on that day you know performs under that pressure you talked a little bit about frustration before as well and i mean in sport i mean there's inherently there's frustration based on kind of how how you're going and how your competitors going but often like with surfing it sounds like that that frustration really kind of isn't in your hands all the time that um in other sports you think oh actually i could have I could have done this better. I could have uh, could have done that better, but sometimes the, it's kind of just beyond sort of what you what you can do on the day in surfing. How do you, how do you kind of deal with that frustration? Like if you've had a if you've had a bad day out there, or if um, actually you just kind of haven't been uh, haven't been lucky that day. 
Yeah, it's a it's a hard one. I mean, you are exactly right, and I think the the only way you can deal with it is once you understand that fact you just mentioned that it's it is out of your control at times. Um, you know, there's a pretty age old saying in the sport of surfing. You know, control control what you can control, and don't worry about the rest. So, um, those are variables that aren't controllable. You know, as long as you've done everything you can in that day to prepare and um, surf to your best. Then you've got you can look back and reflect on it, and you know know that you've ticked the right boxes. And I guess as a coach now, that's the kind of stuff you train kids. Is that yeah, you can't you can't you know just order a wave on dial. It has to come your way. And if you get that opportunity in the heat and, and you don't execute based on the fact that your preparation was you know wasn't there or um, you know various other reasons that you haven't got yourself to be at peak performance, then you can look back and you know you can work on bettering that. But I think the best in the world now they you know they they look back on the heat and if if they lost just because the other guy got that one wave then they can kind of you know swallow it and move on a lot easier and it's just it's just knowing that really knowing that it is a sport of uncontrollables and um, some sometimes it just isn't your day yeah it, it can be really frustrating but then I I could imagine that you know say you were a you know just keeping it and maybe um, I guess similar sports. Say you, you know you're a snowboarder, a skateboarder, and, and you had that last run, and you're dropping into the skate bowl, um, and you needed a certain score, and, and you didn't perform. Then you've really only got yourself to blame. So I would actually see that being a lot more frustrating because you know you can't turn and look anywhere else for any relief. And in surfing, you know, you know a lot of us do it. Sometimes we just blame it on the waves and make ourselves feel better. But um, I mean, you know when you don't perform, but also you know when you are surfing well, your equipment feels good, you're prepared well, um, but you just, you know, that wave just didn't come your way. So it's a, a bit of sweet uh, frustration at times, but I think it's just about knowing what you can control and what you can't control. Yeah, yeah, and I think even when you when you realise that you can't control things, it still hurts when you uh, when it doesn't go your way, but it's a little bit easier to let go of. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it always hurts when you lose. You can't can't take away that gut feeling that you know oh, it's just one you can't shake. But maybe maybe the next day you feel a bit better when um you know it was out of your control than when it when it was something that you uh that you actually just bug it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Matt, you you surf competitions for a while, and you kind of trained with some uh, some pretty impressive guys as well. Uh, sort of Oki and Luke Egan were um took you under their wing a little bit and uh and taught you a bit of stuff yeah I I was fortunate enough um I was sponsored by a company here in New Zealand called Billabong and um they 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 were and they still are the biggest surfing you know company in New Zealand they basically just what they do for the sport here and um I guess the money they put back into athletes and events is definitely second to none so I was, you know, very fortunate to get on that team. And at the time that I was coming up, there was a, a, a tour in Australia. It was called the Billabong um, Teen Series. And basically, it was an under-20 um, circuit that Billabong put on over there. And they used to invite uh, the best sort of surfer or top two maybe from, uh, you know, all the other countries around the world to, to go and um, travel along in a group of, Billabong athletes. So, being that New Zealand's quite a small 
uh, country in comparison to you know a lot of the other surfing um, you know mega surfing countries. I was fortunate that I, I, at the time I was you know sort of New Zealand's top uh, junior for Billabong, so that I I got to go on that tour for three years in a row, and. In that tour, there was these, I guess, training camps along the way. So we had the surf events, and then would it started at the top of um, Queensland and basically toured all the way down to Victoria over a course of, I think it was about four or five weeks. Um, and in between, as I was saying, there was these training camps, which was for all of the all of the athletes that were there for the Billabong Team Series, or that were invited, I should say, by Billabong. And uh, a couple of them were run by Oki and Luke Egan, so. I mean, at the time, I was just a, a New Zealand kid that, you know, it was. You got to remember, it was before. It makes me sound old, but it was before um, Facebook and before, uh, you know, social media, Instagram, and this day and age, if someone does a, a big error on the other side of the world in Hawaii, we'll see it that night shared across viral, you know, on, on um, social media. So. Prior to that, growing up in New Zealand, you just didn't see that level of surfing. You just weren't exposed to it. So. I mean, Oki and Luke Egan were, were and still are just super superstars. So I was just lucky to be there on those camps. Um, they weren't there for me um, specifically, and, and Oki and Luke didn't necessarily sort of mentor me personally on an individual basis, but to be included in those camps and have them, I guess, provide mentorship and advice and training to us as a broad group was equally as um, you know amazing to be a part of. And there are some core surfers in that, you know, I guess that teen series with me from Australia and different other countries like South Africa that went on to be world tour surfers. I mean, one of them was Geordie Smith, who just won the latest surf event only weeks ago. You know, the WCT, so or WSL, I should say. So, yeah, it's cool for me to kind of know. I used to rub shoulders with them for a little while there, but they were always of a, you know, I guess you'd just have to admit they were always of a sort of higher level. They were very you know, very talented surfers from way back then. Even you could see a lot of them had that potential. And, you know, growing up in New Zealand, as I said, you just didn't rub shoulders with people like that enough to maybe have that cutthroat, um, high, higher level that they were at. But but I think now with that exposure we we're talking about in regards to social media and what's out there, I think our kids are, are keeping a, a little bit of a closer leash to it all because they – they get to see it sooner and go out there and try and emulate it, which is which is a good thing. Was it when you were coming up? Was that just because really it was a kind of population size and of New Zealand that there just weren't that many of those really high high class guys that were around to kind of mentor you over here? Yeah, I think that's a definitely a huge aspect to it. Um, you know, I, I I guess historically surfing. It's you know it's been in New Zealand for a while, but it's it's been in Hawaii a lot longer, Australia and America a lot longer. So through the generations, they've had that level of progression that I guess we've looked up to and tried to keep up with. Um, and then yeah, back to the population element, then you don't have as many people working uh, or, or surfing together and pushing each other to to get that cre- you know that cream at the top. You know there'd, there'd always be one or two of each generation, but you go to Australia, there's there's about 50 to 100 of each generation that literally could be a, a world tour surfer. So yeah, I think it's similar in any sport. Um, you just got to look at the Olympics, which are the countries that are dominating. It's the countries that have just huge population base. So 
you know, that creates competition. And as I said, the, the more their competition, the more cream at the top of that, um, that group of people, so mm. to speak. The water's real cold in some parts of New Zealand too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> makes it hard to get in. Yeah, we've got good waves too, but we don't have the sort of waves that produce perhaps the overall, you know, all-rounded surfer that you need to be on the world tour as well. I mean, we, we have great waves and we have some big waves. Just, as you said of it, as you just said, it's cold a lot here, so a lot of kids don't even surf all the way through the winter. But, um, yeah, if you look at somewhere like Hawaii or Australia, just the variety of waves that they have is conducive to the type of surfer you need to be to be a world champion. You need to be able to surf, you know, two foot to 100 foot now, and you need to be able to barrel ride, do airs. You just, you know, there's no limit to the, the, the talent that you need to possess or the variety of you know, maneuvers and capabilities you need to have to be a world tour surfer. Um, and to achieve that, you need to be able to be surfing all sorts of waves consistently. And most kids here in New Zealand, they surf one to two type of waves every, you know, most of the year. Um, they just don't have that, um, yeah, that access to, to those sorts of waves. And, and that's a huge part. It really is. Are those waves around in New Zealand or are they just kind of in remote places or? We yeah we have waves of of all types around New Zealand and I guess the one beauty of New Zealand is you could live on the east coast like Fongamatar and drive two hours and be in somewhere like Raglan you know so if the east coast is flat you can always get to the west coast and we we have point breaks and we have beach breaks and we have sand bars but we don't have a lot of slabs and we don't have a lot of big barreling waves um, and you know they're around especially in the South Island. There's some, some waves around there, you know, the Otago Peninsula and um, a few waves off sort of the East Cape here that, that get big and they get, you know, good barreling waves. But the consistency of those waves being big and barreling is, you know, just not comparable to Hawaii, Australia. Um, and as a result, you know, you just don't get as comfortable in those sorts of conditions. You, you know, you might push yourself to surf those waves uh, every, you know, three to four months maybe. Um but if you grow up in those other countries, I said, it, it might be like, even in Hawaii especially, it might be like that every week, you know, once every week. And you're 16 and you're just, you're just in front of it every other day. So you go out and you surf bigger bigger waves, you get better and better. And then when you go to those international comps, you are, you, you know, you are capable of performing in those conditions. Um, we get to those sorts of waves and we're timid as a result and it's, we're just we're out of our comfort zone. So you're not as... I guess aggressive and um, that shows up in your scores so um, you know what we encourage the kids here in New Zealand now and obviously it costs money but if they're in a position financially or the sponsors are looking after them well enough we try and get them over to those countries to surf as much as possible to expose themselves to those those waves and familiarize themselves with it and allow them to you know get in the comfortable comfortable position moving forward. So the more challenges on different waves they can have really the, the better the better they get. Yeah, definitely, especially as I said, like in bigger ways, that's just what we lack here. Man, I'm going to change tack a little bit, mate. Um, we've been talking about competition surfing for a little while, and you were competing, but then you kind of decided that um, instead of surfing competitions, you were going to get into free surfing. You were going to stop stop competing and, and start free surfing. What um, kind of precipitated that uh, shift? 
in all honesty, it was just finances. <laughs> um, you know, look, I I would have liked to have continued to compete for a little bit longer. Um, I really only, uh, you know, in the scheme of, I guess, before, like, physique and, and everything like that, I, I don't think I'd actually reached that yet. I wasn't doing my best surfing when I stopped competing internationally. But yeah, look, it really came down to the fact that it, it cost a lot of money to travel the world and do the what was what is the World Qualifying Series. And, you know, I, I had some results here and there, but I probably didn't get the results I needed to fund myself to move forward because um, there's prize money. So, you know, had, had I had some slightly bigger results at some points, then, you know, that money could have gone back into my travel fund. But, um, you know, Billabong, my main sponsor, was, was looking after me very well at the time. And uh, it was sort of a double-edged sword for them. They they were investing a lot of money in me um, but not getting a lot of exposure out of me through those events in comparison to spending that money on sending me uh, uh, traveling the world as a free surfer to um, you know travel with photographers and filmers and and go out there and um, produce content which they could you know market and use through the magazines and social media and so on. So yeah, it just got to a point really where you know the, the cost versus the reward for, for not only myself but my sponsors. It just looked. We just looked at it and thought, well, let's spend literally the same amount of money, but let's shift it and spend it on this project. And at the time, I was starting to get a little bit burnt out with the international surfing as well because it's a, it is a grind. It's it's known as the, that tour is known as the grind. You know, as I said, you'd literally travel halfway around the world. You might spend five and a half grand, seven grand to get to this one comp, and you'd have twenty minutes to have a heat. And you know, whether you didn't perform because you were jet lagged or you just you you just didn't have your routine perfect or you were ready to go and the waves just didn't come your way and yeah just it, it burns you out so you know I just felt like it was a good opportunity to take a bit of a, a change of tack and refresh myself and I actually had all the intent to get back on the tour and, and have another nudge a little bit later um, I think I was only 22 at the time when I changed to go free surfing and I thought well now, if I work on my surfing for a couple of years and surf good ways and kind of take take the heat off a bit and just do some select events, um, you know, then around that 25 age mark, I believe, is when, you know, most surfers start to really mature into not only physically but just their, their mindset and this, you know, the psychological aspect of the sport. Um, you know, it's a great time to get back into that competition. Um, so that, that was the driving forces for me personally as well as that financial sort of reason at the time but um, it, it was a great decision Billabong supported me and they sent me on some really cool trips around the world and some beautiful uh, tropical locations so it was literally the you know the best years of my life really in, in terms of my surfing career. Yeah I'm sure you got some uh, pretty cool stories out of that as well and a little yeah. bit more relaxing as well. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it literally was. Um, I guess there was a there was a couple other friends that were fairly fortunate at the same time to to uh, I guess have that same opportunity and and would literally just call each other up. You know, would be like, "Hey, where should we go next? Um, oh, should we go to Tahiti? Yeah, yeah, cool. Let's let's book in. You know, Corey the photographer and let's book in. You know, Chris the the filmer and. And next thing, um, you know, we're all flying to Tahiti together and staying in hotels and just surfing perfect waves and all funded by our sponsors. So um, we look back now and just 
you know, it's kind of like pinch ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet job to have uh, in your early 20s. Yeah, it was yeah, It was pretty good. I want to have a little bit of a chat about uh, leukemia now because you, uh, you'd be f- been free surfing for a couple of years and then uh, you got diagnosed with leukemia. How did kind of how did that lead up? Yeah, um, so I guess just you know from a timeline point of view, you know I was doing the competitions and I did the free surfing, so that was sort of twenty two till twenty four. At that time, I also a, a good friend of mine from Australia. He qualified for the World um, Surf League, and and he actually invited me to be his caddy for uh, the year of two thousand and nine. Which basically meant I travelled with him to all of the, the um, you know, the major WCT events. Uh, just as his caddy, really, and that kind of evolved into a wee bit of a coaching role. And yeah, I had as I said, I had every intent. Basically, at the end of that year, I was really thinking I wouldn't mind giving that competition another crack. I was twenty four, you know, twenty would be turning twenty five that year, and yeah, it was it was sort of as I said, that was that end result after the free surfing. But I, I came home, uh, I was in Hawaii in December with um, Josh at, at the, the last event of the year um, for him and it, it's quite funny because we're over there, it was, well this part was funny, it, it was really a year of big waves there and um, physically you know, I really was pushing myself further than I ever had and uh, yeah, surfing the biggest waves and, and I physically I felt really really good when I came home from Hawaii you know, I'd surfed the biggest waves I'd ever surfed I'd you know done that with some of my idols and um, yeah I, f- I felt really good but within three weeks I was um, in hospital <laughs> getting treated for leukemia so it was it was a really crazy sort of fast head spinning um, transition and yeah it's really hard to explain I guess um, the emotions but it, it, it basically, in terms of how it came about, I just started to feel a little bit unwell um, once I got back to New Zealand in, in late December, early January, and um, yeah, it's just some some obvious warning signs started coming or showing that I so I went to the doctor and um, I saw the doctor at about I guess oh yeah three o'clock on a on a one afternoon the next by the next morning around ten a.m. I was in hospital getting chemo on my arm, so there wasn't a lot of time to process it. It just it just really happened quite fast. What was going through your head when you when you heard the word? Yeah, it's a hard one to put into words or pinpoint. Um, the the story is, as I said, I went to. It's it's a really crazy story in the fact that um I was living in Fongmatar at the time but while I was up in Auckland visiting my partner's um, parents was when you know I started to get these sort of real obvious signs that I wasn't you know feeling too good so I went in to see their local GP which um, was one of the best things ever because if I was in Fongmata I would have had to go through the Hamilton system Um, but I was in Auckland so I went through the Auckland system which was as I said, one of the best things ever because they have this um, the hematology ward up there is is renowned for how incredible they are and the doctor I ended up with um, you know I just he was just amazing. But back to your question, when 
I went in to see uh, my partner's GP at uh, 3 p.m. And as I said, went home, went to bed. He he actually showed up at our door the next day and banged on the door because he'd been the family doctor for so long um, to my partner and her, her, her family. So, you know, you wouldn't normally get that sort of treatment, I think. So, so back to your question, how do I feel when I heard those words? He knocked on the door and when he – I actually went and opened the door and when I saw him, his name's Peter. I said, "Hey, Peter, how's it going?" I didn't even think, you know, why why he was there. I, Come on in, you know, was, you know, you want a coffee, kind of thing. <laughs> um, and he quite seriously asked us if we could come into a room to talk quietly. Um, and that's when I started to sort of think, "Shit, what's what's happening here?" And yeah, when he said leukemia, I didn't know much about it. If I was to be honest, I mean, we also associate it with cancer and. Uh, but cancer is just, uh, you know, it's just a word. You don't really know what's behind the doors of that. And um, and every cancer is so different as I know now. You know, one cancer to someone else, or one person's cancer journey to someone else's is just worlds apart. I, I can't, I don't think you could ever compare two people's journeys to another. So I just didn't know what to expect. I When he said leukemia, I... Um, you know, all I all I basically kept saying was, "What do, what do we need to do?" You know, that's 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 cool. You, you know, you've, well, it's not cool, but you've that's great. You've you've told me what it is, but I need you to tell me what we need to do now. What are we doing now? What are you guys going to do for me? What do I need to do? Because um, I didn't want to dwell on what was wrong with me. I wanted to focus on what I needed to do to get better, and that's pretty much all I did for the entire eight months. That was my focus was those step-by-step process to what do I need to do to get better so um, he said well we need to go to the hospital right now so I just focused on all of those little things and got ready went and yeah but I think the hard the hardest thing for me was I was up in Auckland and um, I wasn't with my you know my family my mum or my dad so I had to call them to tell them so Mm. I was fine personally until I had to call mum. Really, that was that was probably the hardest thing. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, breaking that news to them would be pretty, uh, pretty emotionally traumatic for you. Mm. Yeah, it was. It was it was a little bit uncontrollable, actually. Like, like we we had friends around that morning, like about uh, you know, sort of mid morning. A few group of friends had come around, and we were sort of lounging about. Um, and so going out and telling them, I've it was like a bit of a shock, but it was it wasn't too hard. But yeah, definitely calling the parents was very difficult. But I think it just made it sort of come out of me, which was good to kind of maybe have a little bit of release as well. Mm-hmm. So you kind of were just focusing on kind of the next step each at each part of the process. Definitely, it's all quite a blur now. If I'm to be honest, um, I think you know anything in life that's traumatic. I think the body or the mind purposely gets rid of you know those the, the, the core of it so, you know it's like you can't remember being a baby because um, you know it's such a full-on experience isn't it those first years so you know the, it's kind of like I, something I kind of compare it to at times it's hard to reconnect with those really hard moments or those really challenging moments through the process but yeah look I mean the only thing I focused on throughout the whole process was what I needed to get better, as I said, and and also just my mindset. Um, being a competitive surfer, uh, you know, mindset was everything. So I just treated it like another challenge that I had to, you know, 
to try, you know, like another competition where you, you need to be the winner at the end of the day. So down to heaps of little things. I mean, you know, I, I literally had a saying. I pretty, I mean, there was a couple of really challenging nights there, you know, just with things that happened. But um, you know, it sounds kind of silly saying it now and, and type what the words were, but basically the one thing I said to myself almost every night for eight months was just literally was keep fighting Matt, keep fighting Matt. And I would go to sleep, you know, just repeating that over and over and over and over. So um, it just kind of became my mantra, really. Yeah, so it was an eight-month process going through the through the treatment? Yeah, yeah. It was eight months of chemotherapy. So I had four cycles and basically, yeah, you'd go through the first one, um, which would knock you knock you right down you know your blood's right down and then you'd you'd recover and start to get to a level again basically once your blood's got to a certain level where the the doctors deemed it was you know able for them to blast you again with chemo then you'd go again and it was sort of this roller coaster of you know getting nuked and feeling just absolutely atrocious and then start coming out the other side and then you just go again so yeah uh, I was in remission funnily enough after my first chemo, technically, um, there was literally, they did another bone marrow biopsy. Um, they, so they did one at the start to you know, confirm diagnosis and then they did one after my first cycle. So I think it was four weeks into it, I didn't have any uh, leukemic cells in my body anymore. So you know, back to what I was saying earlier, that's why every person's cancer story is just so different. I have, I have another friend that had <clears throat> a different type of cancer and it took him three years to get to remission and he, he went through this before I, I had cancer. So when he called me and had been for weeks and I said I'm in remission, he he couldn't believe it. Like mm. and it was just a different type of cancer though. So um but yeah, I had to go through through three more cycles just to ins- obviously to ensure that the, the leukemic cells couldn't come back or, you know, were more likely not to come back. So that's sort of the process around that. Do you need to keep getting regular checkups now? I'm out out of the system now, so to speak. So after five years, you basically are cured. Is the the term they they don't say you're cured until five years after um, remission. And I guess that's a technical. Oh, sorry, you know, like the doctors and their sort of um, the rules around how they operate. But I guess my doctor said to me quietly um, about twelve months after he said you're cured. It's just you know, we can't say those words until five months, uh, five years. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't have to go back and have any checkups with, um, with my hematologist. But I, I guess the, you know, the silver lining for me and in, in my story is, you know, having a cancer of the blood, a simple blood test, can pick up, uh, you know, I think it's something around 90, 95 percent. Um, of where your blood activity is at um, and I can w- walk into anywhere and get a free blood test now with these forms I have and um, literally within 24 hours I'll have an email with my results which goes directly to my hematologist and his team as well. So if I'm not feeling well, I can basically manage myself. I know what to look for as well in my bloods. My doctor said, look, if there's anything that shows up, he goes, you'll hear from us before that email arrives in your, in your email in 24 hours. Just the way that I guess the the system works. So um, yeah, that gives you a lot of confidence in, in knowing that uh, you can you can I guess manage and keep an eye on and maintain where you're at. Yeah, so I don't I don't have too many regular checkups other than your normal sort of checkups with the GP just to keep on top of general health. 
But uh, yeah, if I'm not feeling well, I, I things feel a bit funny. I, I'm straight in there for a blood test. <laughs> get get that peace of mind back. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. That sounds good. And thank thanks very much for sharing that. Eh? It was uh, oh, it's, no, it's cool welcome. to to learn about. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's something I I don't um, I don't mind talking about. There's a lot of people that have been affected by cancer, whether it's themselves personally or someone they know. Um, and through this experience, I've met a lot of other people that have had their own you know challenges again personally through cancer or someone they know close to them and I, I think that would be harder i would rather go through cancer again myself than watch someone you love go through it that's at least i was in control that was the one thing i always knew was i was in control um i'd hate to be sitting there you know watching looking at someone in the bed hospital bed and just wondering where they're at in their mind are they still are they still up for the fight so um yeah, it's anyway. It's I, I enjoy talking about that side of it because there's been a few other kids in New Zealand that are surfers that have had cancer, and it's been really good to try and um, be a part of their journey in one way or another, just by reaching out and trying to give them a little bit of a, I guess you know, an example of what I did to try and hope that they can you know have that mindset as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that you're still saying to yourself, "Keep fighting, Matt." Um, not on, not every night, <laughs> like I did. Yeah, look, I mean, my life now is, you know, it's, it's really different. You know, I've got a young family and, um, you know, I run my own business and, and I guess you get very caught up in other, I guess, other requirements of, of life other than your own personal needs, maybe is a, a good way to put it. Um, so it, you don't get as much time to focus in on you and what you need to keep fighting for I guess um, yeah so I, I wouldn't say it too much but um, you know I have other things that I that I use in a similar way for, for where, what I want to achieve now in life yeah you know whether it be career wise or family wise um, that certainly you know is similar in the way I focus on them and what I say to myself I guess what sort of things do you say now well I guess I've I've been one to write my goals down my whole life. I learned that, you know, very young from my dad and, and other inspiring books I've read in terms of how to, you know, a, a achieve what you want to achieve. Um, you know, a good book I've read recently is Think and Grow Rich. Not that everything's about money, but it's just one that is similar goal orientated. And another book, um, you know, Dr. D. Martini, he's got a couple of really good books out there. Yeah, so I, I write down my goals, you know, life goals, family goals, financial goals, career goals, um, and kind of have your top five. And within that, you've got maybe more things within within one goal. You know, you might have seven steps to, towards achieving that. So I, I don't really say to myself things uh, each night now, but what I often do is I pick up my book that I have those goals in and I read those goals. You know, I try to do it every day, but... Now I don't. I'd probably do it every two or three days, but at the very least every week, maybe every Sunday before the week starts. Um, and it just, yeah, it just helps me to, it's my why, you know, a lot of it's my why. Why am I doing this? Or what, why am I in this career? And, and, I, and, I, and I always update those goals. I try to do it every three months, but at the very least every six months, you know, recheck in and make sure those goals are current and relevant to where you are now. And as you achieve those goals, you move forward on those goals as well, and um, it's it's amazing. I, I look back in some of my diaries, you know, whether you know, 2013, I look at what my goals were, and I can go back and tick, you know, virtually all of them off. 
you know, I don't get too carried away like <laughs> I want to be an astronaut or <laughs> no, something that, you know, I know what, you know, it's, it's all things that are achievable and, you know, it's not trying to say I want to win lotto or anything. It's, it's Again, it's back to the things you can control. It's what I learned surfing. You know, focus on what you can control and those other things that you want that aren't in your control generally will come because you're, you're ticking everything that you can tick. Is this something that you kind of developed when you were surfing or is it something yep. that's been more recent? No, I used to do it when I was surfing. Um, I had, yeah, from probably about 15, <laughs> I used to write down, you know, be, you know, you know I will be, um, you know, number one um, ranked New Zealand junior surfer for 2002, whatever it was, and to make the top, um, you know, 16 of the under 20 Australian pro juniors. So it was always goal orientated for sport. And, and then within that, you'd have kind of things that would, big goals to get you to those levels um i think you know one of the, the earlier books i read uh, there was always you, you was basically have kind of seven got five to seven goals but within those five to seven goals there was seven steps to get to each one of them you know what can you do tomorrow and the next day and the next day so i've always looked at if you look at a goal you got to break it down you can't just the thing is to work backwards from there so you you know you've got a clear path um and yeah, soon, and once you do that, it all seems a lot more achievable. And you know, it's not just this big, shining light at the end of some tunnel, and you don't know kind of how you're getting there. You know, as a result, I've taken that into everything I do in life. You know, whether it be work or you know, competitive surfing, or um, you know, as we as we we're just talking about, whether it's getting through, you know, an illness. It's um, you can apply it, you apply that mindset anywhere in life that you you choose applicable. Yeah, definitely, and I think obviously that's a really helpful process something that i find works quite well for me as well is actually kind of every night before i go to sleep the things that i have managed to tick off on that list i'll just say oh i'm proud of myself for doing this today and doing this today and doing this and actually rather than just that continual forward look actually taking a little bit of time to say oh yeah i've actually uh, i've ticked those off and that's uh, that feels pretty good about getting closer to those goals. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm quite a tangible person in regards to how I do things. So I actually, you know, I actually work in real estate now in Mount Monganui as well. And there's a lot of people that work from a digital point of view. Um, all their, their appointments are on their phones digitally and their to-do lists and all that kind of stuff. And um, that's cool. You know, we were only having a discussion about this at work the other day. But I, I just like to see things in front of me and I like to be able to physically draw a line through it or physically write it. I think there's a lot more power in writing your goals down and you know, actually concentrating and focusing on you know, not only what they are but writing them and seeing them in front of you. Um, and then as you said, even more reward when you can put that tick in the box next to it or, or cross it off altogether. And um, even in small small things like just your general day-to-day to-dos, you know, Silly things like go, you know, get the weekly groceries and you know, up to up to big goals. It's I've always had the thing that you know I like to have a diary um, or you know a planner, and if I don't achieve it, it doesn't get cross cross off and it doesn't get ticked off, and I carry it forward to the next week, regardless of how important it is to me anymore. Um, you know, obviously if it's completely not worth it or it was something I put down I shouldn't do. I'll let it go, but basically I bring it forward to the next week. And um, you know, there's certain things that you keep putting off and you keep putting off, 
Yeah, it might be three months, literally, that you keep bringing it forward to next week. Next week, but I think there's so much power in that because eventually you're like, I am so sick of writing this down every week. I'm going to go do this today. Um, and as I said, it can be silly things, or sometimes it can be something that you know is very important and really going to be beneficial to you in some way through again career or family. But you just, you know, you just been too busy and whatever excuse you can think of, and finally you go and you know book your partner in for a massage or, you know, go out and do something together with a couple or take your son to, to, to something that he's been wanting to do. Whatever it is, it's, it's something that you know is important because it's carried through for that long. You didn't let it go and eventually you do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seems to work for me. Mm. And I think those ones are the ones almost that you uh, kind of really feel better about yourself for doing, that you've just yeah. put it off, put it off, put it off, and then all of a sudden you've just kind of, you bite the bullet and, and go and do it. And you think, yeah, oh, yeah, actually, that was a whole a whole lot better than I thought it was going to be, and it's, uh, yeah, makes me makes me feel pretty good about myself doing it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Matt, can you have a bit of a chat about what you're doing with the art of surfing? Now we've kind of touched on some of the stuff already about kind of um, the coaching that you do and uh, kind of uh, giving giving back to uh, some of the younger surfers. Yeah, sure. Um, the art of surfing was something that I I started in 2013, um, basically just through my travels, um, you know, my own experiences with surfing, you know, I, and and being on the international um, stage and competing against international surfers, I really got to see what sort of development um, programs were in place for them and what access they had to coaches and um, management and. You know, again, it was those big countries, Australia and America and all that, that had the, I guess, the money and, and the resources. Um, and I just got thinking how how much it would benefit New Zealand surfing and, and it's something we just didn't have. I mean, you know, not to discredit what's been there before I came along, there's certainly been other people doing what they can and, um, you know, some other coaches and whatnot. But there wasn't really any one or any organisation putting a lot of emphasis on uh, developing the technique and the, and the, the mindset and, uh, you know, of, of our up-and-coming surfers. So, um, yeah, and it was just post, post-cancer. So, you know, that journey, I just looked, well, I really learned that, you know, you've got to follow, you know, where your heart or where your passion is. And um, I wasn't chasing the white picket fence and the, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses or anything. I was just like, I'm going to do something I really care about. And, um, yeah, it, I'd started the other surfing and that launched in 2013 and just haven't really looked back. It's been a really amazing um, ride and it's definitely been a lot of growth within what I, you know, I'm now coaching intermediate adults, doing camps in Bali and been to Dubai, America and um, England and it's it's been it's been a really cool ride um, and it's something that's still still going. Uh, you know, as I said a little bit earlier, I do also work in real estate, but. Um, you know, definitely the passions with the surf coaching and it's really cool to be able to um, help kids that were just like me. I find it, it, you know, I never thought I'd be a coach because I, I wasn't the best surfer, that's for sure. I wasn't the best competitor, competitor either, that's definitely for sure. But what I've realized since being a coach is you can, you don't have to be the, the best, best. You know, I can see things in kids that I used to do or mistakes I used to make or mindsets I used to have you know fears or whatever it is and I can really relate to it because I've been there and I can then actually help them you know you know through that as a result because I eventually worked it out just took me so long because 
I did figure it all out myself. Um, and now you can kind of fast track that for the kids and yeah, help them. And it's, it's really enjoyable. I just, I just had a camp up in Bali in July. I took, um, nine kids up there for a week and I just came back completely re-energized and, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really cool. You know, I'm probably doing a little bit less of the coaching than I was maybe a year or so ago on a personal level because I've got other coaches that work the other surfing now as well. So it's sort of shared among, uh, you know, coaches as opposed to me running all of them. But when I do the camps or courses I run now, uh, I just, it's not work at all. It's just complete, completely enjoyable yeah, and rewarding as well. And I think when you're working as a coach or kind of imparting your knowledge, you, you learn a bit about yourself as well um, and kind of, pick up on things that maybe you wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have realized if you weren't in that in that situation trying to impart that knowledge definitely i'm actually maybe not right now because i don't surf as much as i used to but when i started coaching um i i was better surfing than i'd ever been because you know i was coaching kids all day long and i was actually learning as much as i you know i was teaching i was learning more than i had ever learned about surfing because i had to study it more and you know critique these kids and all of a sudden I started looking at my own surfing going well I don't even do that you know so um, obviously you know you, you can coach kids about things you can't do it's about understanding the concept but um, it made me a better surfer and um, you know that that was really cool so not not only just being a better surfer but definitely um, just learning a, a lot of things in general which definitely has just contributed to who I am today you know, like you said, you're teaching others, but you're learning the whole time, and um, it's it's really cool. And Matt, you're not do, just doing that in person. You also do kind of video coaching with people. Yep. So obviously, with surfing, um, we've spoken about that fact that the ocean is a huge part of, well, you know, it's 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 everything really to to the sport of surfing. So, you know, I run camps and courses, obviously, that I'm at with kids or adults at the beach but um, we can't control what the surf is going to do so often you know well not often but sometimes there can be no waves or the waves are too big for the kids so I provide an online I guess service as well and that that allows kids or anyone parents adults that surf to have someone else film them um, at their local you know when the waves are good for them um, and they can basically then send that footage to me and I can, we, I do like an online Skype coaching session. So we just watch the footage together. I just share my screen with them, and, and uh, the screen is also recorded. So they get emailed, I guess, the coaching session to review over and over. And um, we just, yeah, we just talk through their surfing. We watch the footage, and I critique it and provide them advice. Yeah, it, it works really well. I, I actually think it's the best option if I was going to be doing uh, a coaching session i would i would rather send footage you know over the course of a few weeks of getting months um footage that really showed the things that i wasn't you know maybe i was struggling with and then get the online session i think it, i personally think it's the best service i provide because it allows people to get the footage to me that they know they want fit you know whether it's technique or looking at a specific board or something to that effect um, whereas if they come out and do a session with me and we've booked in two hours, you know, it, it might be conditions they can't show me uh, the type of surfing that they really do or, or the particular manoeuvre they're, they're struggling with. So uh, I think it's a great, a great. I think it's the way of the future. And, mm. and 
in coaching in general, any sport or um, even you know all the other you know life coaching and other aspects of coaching that are out there, it's definitely it's definitely uh, you know a huge for me. It's it's a it's a, something I really want to grow with my coaching, so I can actually coach other people around the world and around the country you know that aren't able to come and see me on a daily or weekly basis. And if people want to find out kind of more about the art of surfing more about you and more about your coaching services where can they go yeah so um if they just go to our website would be the the best place which is just the art of surfing.co.nz or just google the art of surfing it'll be the, the first thing that pops up um and then everything's pretty much on there yeah i'm at, I'm, I'm actually just in the process of giving it with the, the website and I guess the services we provide a little bit of a, I guess, a refreshing look. But other than that, um, all the content will be very similar in terms of what, what, you know, what is within those packages that we provide. And yeah, it's all there. Everything about myself and and the other surfing and about um, yeah the training we we run around the country has a little calendar showing the different uh, upcoming camps and courses. I, I really try and get basically around the country within the calendar year so that I get to all the core surf spots and work with all the kids you know right from Dunedin right up to Northland so but as I said you know I think the best one's the online because you know you might come to our course and then we can recheck in three months later um, just online versus you having to maybe say you're in Dunedin come all the way up to the next camp up in you know uh, Raglan or something like that. Awesome and I'll put a link to the uh, website in the notes for the show as well so people can uh, check that out there. Cool that'd be great thank you. Can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? In all honesty, um, I feel like I failed at competition surfing. That's that's the bottom line for me. You know, I, I honestly think that I am a much better surfer than my my competition results would would tell someone. Um, and I think anyone that knows me well enough would agree. Um, certainly not trying to blow my own trumpet here, but I think you know anyone that surfs with me on a regular basis or sees how I surf versus the results if you just looked at them on paper would they wouldn't match up so you know and a prime example of that is I never actually won a New Zealand national title I got second uh, in every age division that you that there was <laughs> and uh, you know it wasn't to say I couldn't have been the, the, the winner on the day I just I, I didn't deal with pressure well at those final stages that was what I'm able to reflect back on now and and know is that those pressure clutch moments I, I did drop the ball time and time again you know I, I actually went to the New Zealand Nationals wasn't this year it was last year and went in the seniors division it's under 28 um, and over 28 sorry and um, again got seconds and had the wave got given the wave to win the comp in the final minutes and I fell so you know We've all had failure one way or another in life, and um, I reckon my overall, my competition surfing, although I've had wins and good results, I felt like as overall I, I failed um, there. But what did I learn? I, I just learned you had to, I, you know, not trying to sound too cheesy, but you do have to pick yourself back up and carry on because it doesn't define you. You know, that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the, the road. It's, you know, I just keep, used to say, well, don't let that result define you. And, and as a result, on, on the big picture now for me, you know, competition surfing doesn't define me. It's just it was just a part of my life at one point. You know, I think I'll, you know, if anyone was to remember me, they'll remember remember me for different things. You know, that I've done, and competition would just be something that was a part of part of it, which makes me feel good. 
now. So uh, at the time, it was like yeah, the world was ending, though. Pretty valuable learnings from that, I think. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, everyone says, you know, people that in sport that compete learn a lot of great life lessons. I remember getting told that when I was a kid, and this will help you. And bugger off, I just lost like. <laughs> No crap, but um, yeah, it, it does. I guess it helps you grow a backbone and you know, certain th- other things in life when you fail. Yeah, you probably a bit easier to pick yourself up and go or you know, have be motivated and driven to succeed. Mm. And the problem with um, those learnings is often that we don't actually learn them until a bit of, uh, bit of time in the future. We don't see them at the time. No, definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that, that's that old uh, listen to your parents thing, eh? Or wisdom that you don't wanna <laughs> you don't hear at the time, but um yeah. No, yeah. they're generally right, aren't they? Matt, can you tell me about the last uncomfortable thing you did and how you got through it? Although I've spoken uh, I think public speaking is always an uncomfortable um moment for, for anyone really. Um there's people that are that are really good at it, but I think even those people need to kinda of pump themselves up just prior to that moment. They've, no, I don't think it comes natural for anyone. So, um, yeah, look, recently um, I've started in real estate, um, working in, in Mount Monganui, Uh and that's left field for me. I've always been in surfing in an industry I've known well, and the industry that I guess I'm known and respected for, for what I've done in, in the sport. And you know, even when I started my surf coaching business, it was really easy to, I guess, launch that and, and have people come based on, you know your your reputation and, and what you, they knew you could you could provide their kids. Um, and now I am putting myself out there in in an industry that you know I'm, I'm learning very fast and I feel very confident already. However, when I first got started, it was foreign. You know that public speaking aspect, uh, going to different trainings and being kind of put out of your comfort zone to do role play with people you just didn't know. And at the time, you didn't really know much about what you're role playing about. So. That they were almost like personal growth sessions. I look at them now. Um, although we're there to learn about, you know, the the content of um, of what we were the industry we were about to get in into. It was um, a little bit more than that. It was it was really uncomfortable. There was fifty, sixty people in there, and you got paired up into groups. All these different things. But by the end of it, you felt quite empowered, and you know, good friends with these people and people you keep in contact with now through the industry. So I think you got to continually challenge yourself and um, real estate decision for me was because I was always away traveling with my coaching and I just recently had a, you know, me and my partner had our first little boy so I just needed to do something that I was able to be home more and, you know, home, I wanted to be home more with the family so I stepped into something that was really uncomfortable (laughs) but now it's starting to feel, it already feels very comfortable. Matt, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? I don't know yet. <laughs> um, what's the next uncomfortable thing I'm going to do? Yeah, look, I guess it's hard to say. I look, I, I don't have any plans at the moment of anything. I'm I'm going to do that's uncomfortable. I think no one plans to do things that are uncomfortable. Well, you know, we don't tend to plan to do things that are uncomfortable because that's something we we're moving away from, isn't it? We we move away from uncomfortable. And move towards comfortable. That's human nature. But every now and then, life, um, you know, might present something that you think I should. I've got to go do that. That's not going to feel great. But um, it's it's going to be better for me long run. Or sometimes you just don't have a choice. So I, I don't know what's next for me in that in that role. Um, but 
yeah, I'll, I'll just deal with that one when it comes. <laughs> awesome, Matt. Matt, I've got one more question for you, but uh, before I ask it, I just want to say thanks for uh, spending the time uh, with me today and sharing your your story and uh, kind of teaching teaching us a little bit about uh, about surfing, about uh, leukemia, and about life. It's been uh, it's been awesome. No worries. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's been good. It's, I think it's cool. Cool subject you're talking about. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, yeah, before we go, do you have any advice or life lessons or interesting facts to leave me and the listeners with? Um, I guess just tying or summarizing everything I've said over the last hour or so. Um, I mean, the one thing for me, um, I, I don't think of myself as uh, anyone different to the person next to me, but just just be just be driven. Like, have goals and and focus on them. Um, whatever it is, whatever you want to do. Um, you know, I don't want to sound cheesy, but it's the secret to life. Like, if you literally focus on something. That's you know, as I said earlier, isn't some ridiculous thing. It's it's achievable, whatever that is to you. Be the biggest lesson I've learned in life is you can do anything you want. Seriously, even if it is a bit crazy, you know, if you're young enough and you want to be some superstar athlete, just focus on it. Or if you're you know older and you want to achieve something with your career or you know financial goals or family goals, just write those things down and um, you know work towards it do the steps that need to be done um, because if you have a goal and you focus on it you will achieve it it's as simple as that and it sounds maybe a little bit too you know <laughs> airy fairy to some people it might just they might not be able to relate to it but I've just personally I've had you know there always been things I knew were possible and um, you know for the most part of whatever I've written down on in those diaries they've got ticks next to them so and the ones that don't yet they will eventually as far as I see it so yeah that's my advice if anyone wants to do anything in this life whatever it is just write those goals down and we'll just make sure you focus on them you'll get there sweet Matt that's a great note to uh, finish up on cheers no worries <laughs>